Now I want to go on to tie it up with two other lines of reasoning. One is the Apostle Paul. This is one that I struggled with as a non-believer to refute Christianity. It was one I was going to include in my book to refute Christianity. Was I was going to refute the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, the Jewish radical leader who became the Apostle Paul, the Christian missionary. Here's the background. Saul, who became Paul, his Jewish name was Saul, studied 14 years under Gamaliel, the grandson of the great Jewish scholar Hillel. He was an extreme zealot. He was referred to as the son of a Pharisee, which was a high title. In Acts 26, it said that he pursued to death the sect of the Nazarene Christians. It goes on historically and said that he laid waste the church. He got special written permission from the high priest to go from city to city and village to village arresting the Christians and casting his vote for them to be killed. The Christians feared Saul of Tarsus. Something happened. Boy, did something happen. In his own words, now recorded in the book of Acts, where the Roman law system examined it all carefully. Everything that I've shared here, the Romans all had in their records to check out of the book of Acts. In Paul's own words, he was pursuing the Christians to kill him. And Jesus of Nazareth appeared to him. Struck him blind, even though his eyes were open. Told him to go into the city and that the Lord would send a messenger to tell him what to do and to give him back his eyesight. He went into the city. Those with him took him into the city. He waited. God went to a man in the name of Ananias. The Lord said, Ananias, I got a job for you. He said, I want you to go to Saul of Tarsus and tell him this. He said, I'm not going to go. Jesus said, you either go or you're unemployed. <laughs> he said, he literally said, I am not going to go. I have heard the reputation of this man who has ravished and destroyed the church. And God said, go. And it said he went out of faith. And it says, boy, you talk about faith. One of the greatest steps of faith in the scriptures is Ananias put his hand on Saul of Tarsus' shoulders and gave him a word from Christ. He gained his eyesight back. He became the greatest missionary statesman for Jesus Christ to this day. He went from a murderer to a missionary. From a Christian hater to a Christian lover. He went from an antagonist to a protagonist. I knew I had to refute his conversion. I couldn't. I tried every... What happened? And it happened in a point of time. Not over months, anything. And he died a martyr's death. 
I had to explain away the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. I was at the University of Houston lecturing. I went down the cafeteria, paid for the best food in captivity, <laughs> took the tray, went over and sat down, wanted to share Christ with a person sitting at the next table reading a big heavy textbook. So I started to share Christ with him. Wasn't even interested. Didn't even give him time to answer. I said, what are you reading? He said, a history book. I said, what area of history? He said, the Roman times. I said, oh, really? I said, is there a chapter in there in Christianity or the Apostle Paul? He said, yeah. I said, could I look at it? So I went there, opened up the chapter. The first few paragraphs and pages talked about, it was almost all on Saul of Tarsus, which so many are. Talked about Saul of Tarsus. The last few pages talked about the Apostle Paul. When I read next to the last paragraph to this graduate student, it said, we don't quite understand what happened in between. <laughs> I took what is called the four spiritual laws that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Man is sinful. Jesus Christ died for his sins and you can trust him as Savior and Lord. I shared with him and I led him to Christ with a Roman history textbook. I said, let me explain to you what happened in between. And I have to say, in all my research, probably the most asinine, and I use that word cautiously, whatever it means, <laughs> the most asinine, the most foolish research and answers to an issue I've ever read are the people trying to explain away the conversion of Saul of Tarsus to the Apostle Paul of all my research in any subject for 40 years. A friend of mine, John, was doing a debate at an Ivy League school. He was debating the head of the philosophy department. It was held at a fraternity house, which was way too small. They had all the windows open, people outside packed in. The people that arranged the debate committed my friend to going first. So John took three lines of defense for Christianity against the campus atheists. One, the reliability of the scriptures, the manuscript evidence and everything, the resurrection, and the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. When he finished, 38 minutes later, his opponent literally jumped to his feet, could not deal with the reliability of the New Testament, could not deal with the overwhelming evidence there is for the resurrection. So he jumped in the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, and this is literally the line of reasoning he took. He said, look, we all know that psychology teaches us that you can be so against something, you end up accepting it. And my friend spoke up and said, sir, you better be careful, or you're going to become a Christian. <laughs> and it ended the debate. His name was John Flack. Some of you knew John Flack. The conversion of Saul of Tarsus. Two professors at Oxford University, Gilbert West and Lord Littleton, were, to were determined to literally destroy the Christian faith. They knew they had to destroy two things, the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. They took a leave of absence, do their own research over a year, their sabbatical, and then they were coming back and write a book together to refute Christianity. When the two men returned, they were a little sheepish to share their findings. 
because each one, independent of the other, had come to the exact opposite conclusion of what they set out to prove and become an ardent follower of Christ. <laughs> Lord Littleton chose and was assigned the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. And this is what he said. The conversion and apostleship of St. Paul alone, rightly considered, was itself a demonstration sufficient to prove that Christianity is a divine revelation. And Dr. Littleton accepted Christ as Savior and Lord. I could not explain away the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. I had a problem. My mind told me it was true. My will is way over here. As I set out to silence those professor, Christian professors in university, after traveling throughout the United States, England, the continent, and the Middle East to gather the evidence to write evidence of man's verdict against Christianity, my mind told me it was true. I couldn't sleep. I'd go to bed at 10 o'clock and I would kind of wrestle with the thought till 3, 4 in the morning. Affected my grades, everything. So finally I knew I had to get off my mind before I went out of my mind. I was open-minded, but not so open-minded my brains would fall out. And so I made a choice. That night I said, God, if you're God and Jesus Christ is your son, and he died in the cross for my sins, then right now, I confess that I'm a sinner. No one had to tell me. I knew it. So right now, I accept Christ as my Savior and Lord. I place my trust in him. I accept his forgiveness. As Jesus said, I stand the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and open the door, I will come in. Not to start a religion, but to have a relationship. I said, come into my life. Last thing I prayed was just, kind of just, thank you for coming into my life and nothing happened I didn't sprout wings I didn't rush out and buy a harp as I shared the other night I felt like I was going to vomit at that moment I felt sick to my stomach I thought I was going to chuck my cookies I think for two reasons one I was afraid that I'd made an emotional decision I would later regret intellectually but more than that, I was afraid of what my friends would say. I was afraid they would laugh at me, and they did. The next morning, I'm in Union City, Michigan, stand in front of Fabiano's Ice Cream Place. Here comes a friend of mine, Earl. I mean, I was all excited. I said, Earl, you won't believe it. Last night, I accepted Christ as my Savior and Lord. He must not have believed it. Because he just looked at me and laughed and walked away. It crushed me. I never told a single person about Jesus Christ for six months. It so hurt me. Nine years later, I'm speaking in Phoenix, Arizona to a men's conference of 5,000 men. That was before they kept their promises. <laughs> and as I was speaking, I looked over to the right and I saw this man. I stopped right in my talk and I said, what's your name? He said, Earl. 
This was nine years later. I said, what are you doing here? He said, do you remember nine years ago when I laughed at you? I said, yeah, you don't forget that. He said, I couldn't either. He said, it haunted me for eight years. And he said, last year, I gave my heart to Christ and invited him into my life. And then he turned introduced to the 5,000 men, his father and his brother, who he led to Christ. But you see, when I made that choice to trust Christ as Savior Lord, I didn't have the faith to understand that most of my friends would come to Christ too. And the reason they laughed is I was the most unlikely person they ever thought would ever come to Christ. And I should have had enough sense to realize that I'm an intelligent person. I am. I mean, I'm not stupid. And if I'm interested, why wouldn't my friends be? They're no more intelligent than I am. <laughs> Plus, I found out in universities. I've given over 23,000 talks in over 1,000 universities in 128 countries, more than anyone in history. And boy, I can make this statement from experience. The sharper intellectually the university, the greater the response to Christ. You give me Harvard, MIT, Stanford, whatever. I will see percentage-wise more come to Christ than any other university. In about six months, a year, year and a half, my entire life was changed. I want to close these four days, four nights. We're just sharing with you one of the changes. I'm not proud of it. I'm ashamed of it. But it's part of my life. I had a lot of hatred in my life. A lot of hatred. I had a lot of bitterness and resentment. But there was one man that I hated more than anyone in the whole world. I hated his guts. I can remember when I was 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 years old, lying awake at night plotting this man's death. How I could kill him without being caught by the police. That man was my father. Because growing up in Union City, Michigan, he was the town drunk. I hardly ever knew him sober until I was 20 years old. I'd go out in the barn. See my mother lying in the gutter in the manure behind the cows. Where my father had taken a milk hose and beat her to a bloody pulp. To where all she could do, lying in the gutter in the manure behind the cows, she could only roll over on her back on the walkway, the cement walkway behind the cows. And I was 7, 8, 9, 10, 11 years old, and I remember standing there just swearing, when I am strong enough, I'll kill him. We'd have friends over my dad would be drunk. Any of you have an alcoholic or a drug-related parent, you know what I'm talking about. The rest of you don't. You know the shame. You know just that deep shame that you sense. So I was just a kid, and I'd grab my dad around the neck, and I'd pull him out to the barn, through the snow or through the dirt, before the people arrived, and I'd throw him into the pen where the cows have their calves. And I'd take the car, back it out of the garage, leave the garage doors open, park it up around behind the silo in the farm there and tell the people I had to go an important call so we wouldn't be shamed or embarrassed. I'd prop him up against the boards and I'd put his arms through the boards like this. And then I'd tie a rope from one hand to the other hand. And then at just 9, 10, 11, 12 years old, I'd put a rope around his neck and I'd pull his head all the way over that top board and then I'd tie the rope and pull it in a tight knot around his feet 
So if he ever shuffled his feet to get loose, he would choke himself. And I'd leave him from like 7 o'clock at night until 5 o'clock the next morning. Two months before I graduated from high school, I came home from a date about midnight. And I ran into the, I walked into the house and my mother was bawling, just weeping and crying. And I remember running through the house to her bedroom yelling, Mom, what's wrong? What's wrong? Because I could hear her way outside when I approached the house. And I ran into her bedroom and I said, what's wrong? She sat up in bed and she said, your father has broken my heart. And then she reached down, put her arms around me and pulled me to her. And she said, son, I've lost the will to live. All I want to do is live and you graduate, then I just want to die. Boy, let me tell you, that was hard to hear. You know what happened? Two months later, 61 days later, I graduated. And the next Friday, the 13th, my mother died. Don't tell me you can't die of a broken heart. My mother did. My father and my older brother broke it. And I hated my father for it. When I was just a little guy, I don't know how old, probably 12, 11, 12 years old, I would guess. My older brother, who is my father's favorite son. Some of you have been families like that, and you know it. My brother was the one who chose to stay in the farm. Anything he ever needed, my father gave it to him. And like so many families, he's the one that turned on him, the favorite son. He took my father to court and my mother and sued him for everything they had. It destroyed my mom. One thing he took was a house that my folks had built, a new home just up, probably about from here to the back of the auditorium from the house. And he got that in the lawsuit. So he decided to move it. My parent, I found out later, my mother especially had begged him to leave it, and he just so despised my dad, he wouldn't. My, my mom, he said, look, we'll build you another house anywhere, whatever, we'll buy the land. And he so despised my dad, he said no. Well, I had heard that they were going to move a house. Now, I was just a little kid. I couldn't imagine that big house. They're going to pick it up and move it. Oh, wow. For two weeks, I lived with excitement every day. For that Saturday. Because they'd been out and banged all, you know, the concrete blocks out underneath the house and was putting the big beams under because Saturday they were going to move that. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't sleep Friday night. I got up, got my chores done, went in, showered, got dressed. As I ran out of the house, I looked up and there were scores of people up there. People I knew from that little town of Union City, Michigan. Parents of all my friends were there. But what I didn't realize, my brother Wilmot, who was very, very popular, he had the most phenomenal personality. He could sell a farmer two milking machines, only had one cow and take the cows down payment. <laughs> he knew my father would stand in opposition to moving the house. So he went around, talked to all the other farmers, business people and everything to come out 
and stand in opposition to my parents. I didn't know any of that. I just thought they couldn't believe you could move a house like that either. So I ran out of the house, and I remember I ducked under a little barbed wire thing. There was a little gate I'd always go through, and it was a little no, probably twice as steep as this right here in the house was right on top of it. And I was running, chugging up there, and I got to the top. It was like I hit a glass wall. I heard the dirtiest, filthiest names being called to my mother and father by the parents of my friends, the cats as others. I snapped. I couldn't take it. I started screaming. I ran down the other way. Went into the end of the barn where you would put the corn to later grind when the grinder the grinder would come in a big truck to prepare for cow feed. Pulled the door closed, locked it, pulled out the boards, let all the windows down, locked them. And I sat there and cried for three hours. And I just prayed to die. I never wanted to step out into the light again. I was so ashamed. After three hours, they found me, and I fought them taking me out. I hated my father for it. I grew up believing my father had killed my mother. And I hated him. I was introduced to Jesus Christ. And I came to the conclusion, only led of the Holy Spirit, that the Bible is true. It is God's word to you and me. That Jesus Christ is his son. Who he sent to die on the cross for my sins. And was buried, raised again the third day. I placed my trust in Christ as Savior and Lord. In a period of about five to five and a half months, a love, I can only say, boy, the love of God through Jesus Christ in the day of my life took control of my life. And it took that hatred and turned it upside down. And I found myself looking at the man whom I chose by an act of my will as a new Christian to hate. I chose to hate my father as a Christian because of what he had done to my mother and to my family. And I found myself looking at my father and saying, Dad, I love you. It shook me up. I wasn't used to it. I was not used to it. And it scared me because I didn't want to love him. Six months later, I was in a serious car accident. Legs, arm, and neck contraction all pulled out. They took me home. They called my father from Wheaton College. He was drunk when they called him. He thought I was dying. They took me home. I was stretched out in bed like this, and my father came into my room, and he was sober because he thought I was dying. I wasn't near it, but he was drunk when they called him. He didn't say anything. I, it probably was no more than 10 seconds, but it seemed like forever. I'm strapped in bed with all these things pulling me. 
and he's walking back, pacing the side of my bed. All of a sudden, he got right even with my shoulders here. And he stopped, and he leaned right over in front of my face, and he blurted out. He said, how can you love a father such as I? I said, Dad, six months ago, I hated you. I despised everything that you stood for. Then I shared with him about Jesus. How he died on the cross for my sins. Was buried, raised again the third day. And when I placed my trust in him through God the Holy Spirit, he entered my life and changed me from the inside out. And I said, Dad, I love you. Forty-five minutes later is one of the greatest joys in my life to this day. When my own father, a man I couldn't pull the wool over his eyes, he said to me, son, if God can do in my life what I've seen him do in your life, then I want to know him as Savior and Lord. You talk about joy. Most people don't have this much joy in a lifetime. I had one moment. Right there, my daddy. Prayed, I, always, I, I say it was a farmer's prayer because it was very down to earth. My daddy leaned over my bed. And he said, God, if you're God, and Jesus is your son, and if you can forgive me for what I've done to my family, boy, you talk about a personal prayer. If you can forgive me for what I've done to my family, and if you can do in my life what I've seen you do in the life of my son, then I want to know you personally come into my life. My life was basically changed in six months, year, year and a half. There's still areas being changed. The life of my father was changed right before my eyes. It was like somebody reached out and turned on a light bulb. No, don't get me wrong. I never saw it before. And I've never seen it since to this day such a rapid change. It usually takes place over a number of weeks, months, or a year or two. My father only touched whiskey once after that. Wine. He was a wino. He got his lips and that was it. He didn't eat anymore. I cannot even recall my father going through withdrawals. I'm not saying he didn't. I'm saying I can't recall it. For 14 months, I knew what it was like to have a dad. And then he died. Three-fourths of his stomach had to be removed through 40-some years of drinking. His liver, everything was destroyed through constant drinking. He lost his family. He lost everything. But he found the Lord. I'm convinced of one thing. Jesus not only forgives, he not only establishes, not a religion, a relationship with the living creator God, but he changes lives. But I'm not a Christian because God changed my life. I'm a Christian because of my convictions about who Jesus Christ is. And the faith that God gave me to place my trust in him as Savior and Lord. I was in Seattle. I was asked to share what I just shared here with what they said was the largest gathering ever of financial resource people, in other words, rich people. (laughs) 285 millionaires in one luncheon. I shared this. I no sooner finished, and there was a, uh, what do you call it? Not an alley, an aisle going off this way. 
And all of a sudden, a man, 84 years old in the back, jumped up and almost ran to the front. He got about halfway through the front, and I couldn't believe He was one of my heroes in life. His name was Billy Allen, the founder and CEO of the largest airplane manufacturer corporation in the world, Boeing. Everyone admired him, respected him. There, He came right down in front of every single person there. Channel 8 was there, everything. And he threw his arms around me. Here was a guy, I'd written papers on him as an economic theory major in university. Never thought I'd ever meet him. And he threw his arms around me in front of everyone. He said, young man, I wish I'd heard this talk 40 years ago. And maybe the prayer that I prayed would help you right where you're sitting to express that very desire to God to trust Christ as Savior and Lord. Maybe it's tonight he's brought a culmination in your life of many things and some of the things I shared in order to bring you to that point. Now is the time to place your trust in Christ. Besides, you might be dead tomorrow. Some of you folks here, I've seen you could be. I don't ask you to bow your heads. I don't ask you to close your eyes. Key to prayer is not the position of the body, but the attitude of the heart. This is a prayer I pray. Maybe help you. I pray, Lord Jesus, I need you. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. Forgive me and cleanse me. Right this moment, I place my trust in you as Savior and Lord. I accept your forgiveness. Come into my life. Make me the person you created me to be. In Christ's name, amen. Many of you, and I mean many of you, just prayed that prayer with me. You were sincere. If you did, before you go to bed tonight, grab a Bible. You don't have one? They got a one-year Bible here somewhere. I'll trust you. (laughs) You turn to the Gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Read John 3 three times. That's what I did. And before you read it, just pray an honest prayer. Besides, that's the only way you should pray anyway. Say, God, if you're God and Jesus is your son, if tonight you came into my life for that decision, challenge God. Say, give me the conviction of it. And then read John 3 three times. Second, in the next few days and several weeks and months, If you prayed that prayer with me tonight, I'm going to ask you to look for significant changes in your life, in attitudes and actions. See, the reason I like to tell you that, nobody told me that. And all of a sudden, I started to see these changes, and it scared me. And so I like to warn people ahead of time. (laughs) I do. And then I want to say this. I said it before. This is a church that cares. And you go outside to the right. You look over there. There's a green and white sign that says the next step, meaning this. If you took that step tonight, they want to help you to take the next step. I like that, the next step. There was nobody there to do that for me. No church, no one. And I wish to God there had been someone like some of the people here willing to take that next step with you. And if you go out there, 
you share with the people out there. And it's your decision. Say, I prayed that prayer to trust Christ tonight. What I've done is ask them to give you a copy of one of my books that I wrote just for people like you. It'll take you about two hours to read it, but it'll answer, I guarantee you, the majority of questions you've ever had about Jesus Christ in the scriptures. So if you pray, only if you prayed that prayer tonight, or maybe you didn't, a lot, of, a lot of businessmen, especially men, not women, men will say to me, I'll get a call, I'll get a phone call, email or something, say, I didn't pray with you, I went back to my office the next day, closed the door, got that's men for you, got all alone, and there I accepted Christ, will you send me that book? So I said, look, that costs money, so do this. If you haven't made that decision, but you think you're going to, Hey, saves you an email. You tell him there, I didn't make that decision, but I've got a lot of questions, and I think I might. And that book is your gift. Please. It's your, it's your decision to do it. But I don't think, I don't think I've ever had anyone, when I've encouraged them to do that, has ever said to me they regretted it. To the church leadership here, to the pastor who had me in so he could go on vacation. It's <laughs> probably true, I don't blame him. <laughs> to the board and all, I want to say thank you for the privilege I've had of coming in. And before all of you, I want you to hear me say to Eric, Eric, I love you, guy. Thank you for the way you've treated me. And Dottie and Heather, and Josh, and all. You have been a marvelous representative of all these folks here. You sure have. say you'll never forget where you were when you heard the news on September 11th, 2001. Neither will I. I was on the 110th floor in a smoke-filled room with a man who called his wife to say goodbye. I held his finger steady as he dialed. I gave him the peace to say, Honey, I'm not going to make it. But it's okay, I'm ready to go. I was with his wife when he called as she fed breakfast to their children. I held her up as she tried to understand his words. And as she realized he wasn't coming home that night, I was in the stairwell of the 23rd floor when a woman cried out to me for help. I've been knocking on the door of your heart for 50 years. I said, of course, I'll show you the way home. Only believe in me now. 
I was at the base of the building when the priest ministered to the injured and devastated souls. I took him home to tend his flock in heaven. He heard my voice and answered. I was on all four of those planes, in every seat, with every prayer. I was with the crew as they were overtaken. I was in the very hearts of the believers there, comforting and assuring them that their faith has saved them. I was in Texas, Kansas, London. I was standing next to you when you heard the terrible news. Did you sense me? I want you to know that I saw every face. I knew every name, though not all know me. Some met me for the first time on the 86th floor. Some sought me with their last breath. Some couldn't hear me calling to them through the smoke and flames. Come to me, this way, take my hand. Some chose, for the final time, to ignore me. But I was there. I did not place you in the tower that day. You may not know why, but I do. However, if you were there in that explosive moment in time, would you have reached for me? September 11th, 2001 was not the end of the journey for you. But someday your journey will end, and I'll be there for you as well. Seek me now while I may be found. Then, at any moment, you know you're ready to go. I will be in the stairwell of your final moments. what they did and this still amazes me even though I've studied it in detail it absolutely amazes me but what God did to preserve his truth they would finish say with the book of Isaiah 66 chapters thousands of letters they'd have the old one they're copying from they'd have the new one they just copied they'd take the new one and they'd go through and they would count every single consonant 
in the entire book of Isaiah and indicate the center consonant. Why? They knew from every book of the Bible what the center consonant was. They could tell if they added or left out one consonant. Then they'd go back and they'd count all the consonants like T's. They count all the T's, indicate the center T. They count all the M's, indicate the center M's. They count all the... They could not only tell if they added or left out one consonant, but which one it was. They count every single word. They were called the counters. And the joke used to be, I, I think the count came from here. Joke used to be, they would count anything that was countable. Now, when they finished, they had the old manuscript, they had the new manuscript. Today, what we do with the New Testament, we give the greatest authority to the oldest manuscript. They didn't do that. The Jews would give the greatest authority to the newest manuscript. Why? Because they had done something no one else in history had ever done. With the discipline, the meticulous care. And they knew. I mean, they knew when they finished, they had an exact copy. Now, the old manuscript could become defaced, worn, misread. So what they would do is take the old manuscript and they'd use it like in the synagogue schools, like Sunday schools. And it was too worn to be used there. Then they took the manuscripts and they put it in a wooden cupboard called the Ganitza. And when the Ganitza was full, and if they, now, here's another thing they put in the Ganitza. If they made more than three errors, they had to correct. If they're writing a word and it touches and they have to correct it. More than three times of any error, they couldn't use the manuscript. Had to be destroyed. Now think of this. <laughs> Justifiable suicide. You just finished Isaiah. <laughs> You've made three errors that you have corrected. You're on the last word. And you sneeze. And you make an error. They have to destroy the manuscript. They took the manuscripts with errors in them and put them in the wooden cupboard of Ganitza. Then when the cupboard was full with the old manuscripts and the ones with errors, they took them out and buried them. Because they didn't want anyone to pick them up and misread them even, let alone mistranslate them. And the reason we don't have the old manuscript, they were all destroyed. On purpose. But the lack of those manuscripts, oh, in no way, takes away from what we have. Because God created the Jews to do something that no other people in history ever did with sacred scriptures. The meticulous care and detail of transcribing them. They found one in a church. And it hadn't been buried yet. An old synagogue, I mean. And some of the scholars got a hold and said, Oh, we found some errors. And later they found out they discovered a Ganitza where all the copies with transcribing errors had been placed. And they really embarrassed themselves for a while. That is the care that the Jews took of their sacred scriptures. Phenomenal. Now, I want to show you historically the accuracy of the Jewish transcription of the text. A man whom when I get to heaven I want to meet. 
His name is Dr. Robert Dick Wilson. When Robert Dick Wilson was 25 years old, he felt led of God to make a pact. He said, God, if you allow me to live to be 70, 45 years, I make this pledge. In the first 15 years, I will study every single significant language the scriptures have ever been translated into. Said so the second 15 years, I will study the entire Old Testament text over one million consonants, consonant by consonant, and it took him 15 years. Is the, is that T supposed to be there traced all the way back? Uh, H, is that H supposed to be there traced all the way back? One million consonants. And then he said, the last 15 years, I will write and travel and speak and defend your scriptures. Robert Dick Wilson kept his pledge and God allowed him to live to be 70. He mastered, (laughs) he didn't study, he mastered 45 languages. I majored in English and learned to speak it fluently by the time I was junior. He memorized the New Testament in Hebrew. Get that. They've been translating the Hebrew word for word, the entire New Testament in Hebrew. He studied every single consonant of the entire Old Testament to make sure not that word, is that consonant the one to be there. And then for 15 years he wrote and traveled. And one of the prized things in my library is when someone gave me a special leather-bound edition of Robert Dick Wilson's work, one of the greatest scholars of history. This is what he found. This is what he found. There are 29 ancient kings mentioned in the Bible who had also been found on monuments. The same king found on monuments and mentioned in the Bible. Of these 29 kings in the Bible, also at that time found in monuments, there was 195 consonants in the 29 proper names. 195 consonants. Of these 195 consonants, only three were even in doubt of exactly what consonant it was. Now, boy, you've got to think this through with me. You've got to think, listen right now. The 129 consonants, the 29 names found in monuments and in the scriptures, 195 con- only three were in question. Every single name was written exactly as it was written on the monuments. Now, this was over a period sometimes of 4,000 years transcribing. Now, remember... Last night I said, the more I compare the scriptures with other literature of antiquity, the greater appreciation and respect I have for God's word. With what I just shared that Robert Dick Wilson found, listen to this. In 200 B.C., the greatest scholar of that time was the librarian in Alexandria, Egypt. The greatest scholar. He did a catalog of the kings of his own country, Egypt. 
38 in all. Of these 38 kings, we'd just gone through a few years of transcribing. Only four of them were even recognizable. Not four syllables, four whole kings. The only way you knew what the list was was by the title. Take Ptolemy. But Ptolemy registered 18 of the kings of Babylon of his day. 18 of the kings. Not one of them was spelled properly. Not one. And you could not make out any of the names unless you knew that this was a list of 18 of the kings of Babylon. If somebody talks to you about the Bible being changed and we don't know that we have today what was written down, you talk to them about the kings. 29 kings of Egypt, Israel, Moab, Damascus, Tyre, Babylon, Assyria, Persia, 10 different countries. All the other lists were all kings from one country in the same language. In the Bible, it's 29 kings from 10 countries. Of those who were in the Bible and found in monuments, every single one is spelled correctly, totally recognizable, in the right country, and the right chronological order historically. The Hebrew text has been so transmitted by the copyists with such meticulous care for so many centuries, it is literally a phenomena unparalleled in history. God protects his word. I believe I can hold the Old Testament in my hand and say it is accurate. You take criticism of the Old Testament. I've thought about writing a book on this, and if I ever get time, I will. Of accusations people made against the Old Testament, the scholars, quote, alleged scholars in universities, making against the Bible and in history refuting. For example, just one. Everybody quoted Herman Schultz in his book called Old Testament Theology. This man was quoted all over the world against the scriptures. Why? Jesus, 24 times, says Moses wrote the law. Christ quotes Moses as the author of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, 16 times. In John 17, 9, Jesus said, Did not Moses give you the law? Dr. Herman Schultz categorically said, That is all fiction. Moses did not and could not have written the first five books of the Bible. It says they were written years, hundreds of years after Moses. In fact, he went as far as saying a thousand years after Moses. Why? Because the scholarship of that time, which he quoted, said it was sufficient proof when Moses lived, there was no writing. It was a time totally 
prior to writing, especially by nomadic tribes. In a weak moment, Schultz said, it was a time when only in civilized countries there's even a beginning of writing. And so Schultz taught, and people quoted him everywhere, it was impossible that Moses could have handed down the family histories and writing period. Because it wasn't until a thousand years later that writing came into effect. They were in Syria. Two men in the University of Rome. And they were excavating this mound. And for years they found nothing. And they went back to where they'd stopped several years before at the end of a hallway. And one of them, just out of curiosity, dug 36 inches further. After years digging around finding nothing, this much further made one of the greatest archaeological discoveries in history, the Tablets of Ebla. A huge Mesopotamia empire. Going back hundreds of years before Moses with two distinct languages and even toilet articles, everything, writing. And all of a sudden, what the skeptics had said was not possible was refuted historically. You could literally write probably a 2,000-page book just quoting illustrations like that. I've learned one thing over the years. It's very dangerous to develop an argument out of silence historically because it has a way through archaeology to write up, to rise up and get you at the throat. And that's happened over and over and over again. There was a community of religious scribes. They were called Essenes. They established a fortress city about a hundred years before Christ. Not far outside of Jerusalem. A very religious community. But then, in the 60s ADs, the Romans came through. And they knew the legions were coming and they had to escape. And they had to escape so fast they couldn't take their scriptures with them. So they went and hid 223 manuscripts up into the caves above Qumran. Sealed them all up so it just looked natural. And then they escaped the legions coming. They remained there 1,900 years. Scrolls. They weren't just Old Testament scrolls. They were manual of discipline, the things they did in the community, everything, plus scriptural scrolls. One day, a young man by the name of Jumal Muhammad, I think he was either 13 or 15 years old, was out with two of his cousins. And they were playing around in the cliffs. His cousins got a little tired, stopped, and Jamal went on. And you know how kids, they pick up and they throw stones and everything. He picked up a stone, threw it, 
and he heard a clink. And something broke. Well, being in the desert, that got his attention. He went up, and one of the caves that had been sealed up started to open up, and there was a small opening, and a stone went through there and hit a ceramic jar that had manuscripts in it. And what he heard was a jar breaking. Well, he scared. He thought it was evil spirits. So he ran back down, told his cousins it was too late to go back up, so they decided, there, decided, <laughs> pretty fast, huh, Eric? Don't mess with me. <laughs> they decided they'd get up early, all of them together the next morning, go up. But Jamal thought, uh-oh, all that treasure up there, all he could imagine was treasury. And so he got up and snuck out and didn't wake up his two cousins. And he went up there, opened up the hole, crawled in, and he just found old green moldy sticks with a lot of mold around. Well, he grabbed a couple, took them down, beat their sheep back to the village. Got back to the village. And two of them were covered with cloth that had been preserved and one with a greenish kind of a calf skin around it. They took it in to Bethlehem and everybody said they were worthless. Professor Sukunet said, they're not old, they're not even worth anything. The archbishop said they're worthless. Well, it ended up to be worth millions. They were the Dead Sea Scrolls that are preserved in the Dead Sea Scrolls Museum behind colored glass with a certain climate so they don't turn to dust. When Dr. Atkinson, under librarian at Cambridge University, examined one, what they found was in one of the caves was a complete scroll of Isaiah that bridged 1,000 years of copying. And what he did, he took the one found the cave, took the one over a thousand years later that had gone through copying and copying and copying. When he compared the two, he made this statement, little short of miraculous. And in reality, he only find a, found a variant of one word, three consonants for the word light. That was different. Out of 66 chapters. There were some variants in spelling because of the way they changed the spelling when they added the syllables. What the Dead Sea Scrolls did, among many things, was show the accuracy of the scribes in transcribing the scriptures. Oh, folks, it is phenomenal what God has done because he wanted to preserve the truth. <laughs> 